Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new show, Ultra Rare, the podcast. We're going to be covering topics at the intersection of science and Web3. We'll also be dabbling in the space of NFTs, art, philanthropy, and more. I can't wait to take you on a tour of some of the amazing people I've met in this space and start to show you some of their awesome ideas. For today's episode, we chat with Darren and Ben about scientific publishing and Web3. And this episode is a collaboration with our friends at VitaDAO. Vincent joins me as co-host today. Thank you so much, Vincent and VitaDAO for supporting this episode. I hope you enjoyed this content. Please subscribe to the VitaDAO YouTube channel and check out their Discord if you're interested in getting involved with this awesome community. I hope you enjoy this episode of Ultra Rare Podcast. Welcome to a new podcast focused on science and Web3 and the intersection of multiple industries. Today, we are talking with two of the thought leaders in the space of scientific publishing and Web3, Darren Zhu of Adams.org and Ben Hills, who wrote a lovely piece called Tokenized Thought. And today we're going to dive into some of the problems with scientific publishing and how the blockchain and Web3 might alleviate some of those issues. So welcome to this new show. Thanks for having us, Jocelyn. Uh, really excited to discuss this uh, new, new area of sort of Web3 and science with you today. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you. It should be a fun conversation. So... To get started, how about both of you give a little bit of an introduction on what your background is? Sure, I'm happy to start off. Uh, my name is Darren. I was part of the original class of Teal Fellows actually in 2011, working mostly on synthetic biology related startups for, for about a decade now uh, in the Bay Area. But I've always been interested uh, both on the open science uh, movement, following sort of both folks interested in open publishing, uh, thinking about the replication crisis, uh, thinking about sort of the science stagnation narrative, but also been uh, excited about crypto for a long time. I had friends who were mining Bitcoin in college in 2010, and Vitalik was a Teal Fellow a few years after me. So I've kind of followed the intersection of this uh, open science and Web3 movement for, for a really long awesome. time now. Yeah, I'm a PhD student. I study uh, earth science. I study glaciology in particular. Um, I am a bit newer to crypto and Jocelyn called us thought leaders. I would say that I am dabbling and uh, thinking about kind of the intersection of Web3 and science uh, just in the last couple of years and uh, wrote a thread on Twitter that kind of blew up and then uh, have kind of been connecting with a few folks since then and uh, really seeing that actually there's a lot more going on than I had originally thought. So I'm excited to, to talk to you for or to you three today uh, and yeah, see, see where things are headed. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm Vincent, um, one of the co-initiators behind VitaDAO and before that kind of also dabbled in cryptos since a long time, but like a decentralized exchange in 2017 to 2020 and then kind of focus on VitaDAO and kind of exploring scientific DAOs to fund research. Um, yeah, maybe I can start with the first question for you, Ben. I would be super curious from you being in academia, what do you think are some of like the most pressing challenges you see where you think uh, crypto could provide a solution? Like what's kind of like, how would you prioritize? Or what do you think could be like one of the immediate um, ways for crypto to help um, people in academia? or solve a problem? Yeah, totally. I think uh, the, the best Web3 apps in my mind are those that uh, can kind of abstract away this layer of trust. So for example, Uniswap connects buyers and sellers that would have originally needed to trust each other uh, or, or rely on some intermediary for trust. Aave does the same thing for borrowers and lenders. In an academic setting, we have folks who are kind of producing uh, content, uh, kind of doing research and maybe writing papers. And then we have those on uh, the other side who are consuming, receiving that content. And the, the consumers of that content want to know that the content won't change on them. It, like they won't get frogged essentially. So they, they wanna know that if they cite a paper that it can't get 
that it can't change after they cite it. So there's this intermediary, this trust layer that uh, essentially are journals that, that do the publishing. And I think that if we instead turn to Web3 and blockchains to act as that intermediary, intermediary that layer of trust, uh, we could kind of uh, pull away some of the friction in, in the publishing space. That's, that's one, uh, one thing, one overarching idea, but I think that there's a lot more that we'll dig into as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. And on kind of scientific publishing in particular and um, writing scientific articles, what do you think could be like interesting um, solutions to explore? What, what are you excited about kind of um, scientific publishing touching Web3? Yeah, uh, I think that in my mind, we would have hopefully someday uh, more continuous publishing framework where instead of kind of working towards this manuscript that you've published a full article that people are kind of publishing along the way. And I think Web3 will hopefully enable that. And that instead of uh, publishing with a journal where you pay them some fee and then they create a DOI for you, you could just directly publish on chain and then the hash associated with that, um, that transaction would act as a DOI. So you, uh, if we kind of forget about things like gas fees, hopefully those will get uh, resolved eventually. You could kind of continuously publish and not worry about um, kind of waiting to benchmark an idea that as soon as you had an idea, you would just put it on chain and benchmark it. And that could be something as small as you know, a quick figure or a data set, something like that, um, just so that you know you, you won't get scooped quickly. You mark it as your own idea, and then you come back to it and you can cite it later, and anyone can cite that hash as a GOI. Um, they know that it won't change. Again, this, uh, the, the blockchain itself acts as this layer of trust. Darren, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting idea that, that I resonate a lot with in terms of thinking about how do we introduce more diverse publishing models, right? Right now we have this sort of very monolithic, unitary PDF-based paper as the sort of primary proof of work in research today. And there's a much broader diversity of research artifacts that aren't captured in that sort of PDF-based paper. Um, but there's also, as Ben just mentioned, there, there is this sort of real-timeness of research that gets lost, uh, especially when you consider sort of the, the whole peer review process, the revision process of how much friction there is in that system, temporally speaking. And so I think there is uh, a powerful opportunity to think about how do we do more real-time research? Um, how, how do we, uh, and I think part of that is a technology issue to some extent of how do you actually sort of quote-unquote unbundle the paper into, into bite-sized uh, pieces that people are interested in, excited to produce and consume. Uh, but part of that is an incentive issue of how do we actually reward people for producing artifacts that are smaller in size, perhaps, than this fully fleshed out narrative of a paper. I'm sure there will always be sort of competitive dynamics so people will want to hold on to some of the, their best data until they can get the full story together. But there's a lot of research that doesn't require that highly secretive, highly competitive dynamic where they can be sharing things more real time, just like people give talks at conferences with preliminary things. We could be sharing artifacts very broadly uh, in, in that real time transparent way. I think great points there. And, and you both talked about the friction in the system. And I wanna root our conversation in some of the key problems within the scientific publishing space. So Ben, I know you're going through the publishing process right now with a paper can you call out some of the financial aspects of what it takes to publish a paper in the current system? Yeah, uh, so I'm right now uh, going through the review process uh, for a paper with geophysical research letters. It's one of the American Geophysical Union journals. And actually I've generally had a pretty good experience, but I would say that I'm in the privileged camp, right? So there are these people like me who can access these things, they have these resources, and then there's a lot of other folks who, who don't really. So in order to publish, we have these page charges and for GRL, this journal, it's $500 if you want to do kind of a standard publication that would be behind a paywall, or you can pay extra, you can essentially uh, cover the cost of an open access journal so that the readers don't have to pay the cost. And then it's $2,700, I think. Uh, 
And where sure. does that money come from? Yeah, it comes from the NSF essentially. So it comes from our grant and this project is funded by the National Science Foundation. Um, like I said, for me, that's not the end of the world. We can kind of pay that to, to get this work out there. Um, so I consider myself privileged for that reason, but it just seems antiquated. Like why, why are we doing this? Uh, it, it doesn't, I can see how maybe 20, 30 years ago, this model kind of got established, but uh, now it seems like it's just cemented and it's hard to move away from. I, I don't think that we really need to publish through these types of journals anymore because um, we have better tools now. And I think, like I was saying, uh, there are a lot of less privileged folks out there who won't be able to publish in journals like this and that $2,700 $2, would be a large barrier for. Absolutely. And then on the flip side, for someone you mentioned not having access to that literature or this you know, research that you've worked on that's funded by the government, how much are they typically paying to be able to access that article if you haven't already paid for the open access? Yeah, I don't know the exact number. Usually it would be like a lot of the money coming into uh, journals would come from universities or academic institutions. So the university would pay some large subscription cost. And I, again, I don't know the exact numbers, uh, but it's a lot. Uh, and then folks within that university can access the journal. So I'm at the University of Washington because of my affiliation there, I can access many journals, but that's because the university is paying a lot of money to all these journals uh, so that I can access them. Yeah, I would say on average, the per article price to view a paper is around 30 to $50 per paper. So it isn't, it isn't cheap <laughs> in my yeah. opinion. Darren, any comments on that? I think one one thing that also Darren that you touched upon is even like the format of like a this like 30 pages of paper which are like not dynamic not interactive like like they're that are kind of the same as like 100 years ago almost like that, that haven't really evolved so I'd be also curious how you, how you think about kind of like more dynamic ways for research like I really like this um, example um, the still.pub on machine learning research where you can kind of like play with the models where it's like much more um interactive and dynamic and would be curious also on your thoughts kind of like how even like the paper could evolve uh kind of also enabled by web3 but also just by uh, just living more on the internet than on paper yeah no it's a, it's a great question and i think there's a lot of opportunity to 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 think about new new technologies that can enable more interactive more dynamic, more rich experiences of consuming and producing research. Uh, the distill.pub uh, example is an awesome one. Uh, a few of my friends were involved with, with that. And it, it's been really interesting to see how a sort of a brand new publication or journal, quote unquote, uh, was able to proliferate because they were they had this additional utility of interactiveness and also being able to uh, being able to explain things in a, a more clear way compared to sort of the, the typical style of academic writing. Um, I think there's a, a lot of interest right now and a lot of usage in terms of Jupyter notebooks for sharing data. And again, allowing people to sort of see the, the steps that you've run to in terms of the analysis you've done. And that, that's a growing space. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities, both sort of on the visualization side, on the data sharing front, um, the interactivity front. Um, and a lot of that will likely be done essentially through Web2 tools. The question I think of always, there's always this, this underlying question of why crypto, why Web3, what's what's new here, I think is part of it is around incentivization, not just of the actual artifacts being published, but perhaps some of the infrastructure and the tooling. Um, can we incentivize people who are building tools that help enable others to create more rich uh, uh, digital first publications? It would be uh, curious also to hear how you want to approach kind of with atoms like what's your vision for like a different kind of um, scientific publishing and or scientific journal that, that lives kind of natively on the internet and yeah share some of the features you mentioned yeah it's a great question it's something that we're still uh, 
figuring out exactly sort of there's a potentially uh, vast feature space to explore and thinking about what are the most important salient for communities that we want to enter with? What are the features that they care for? Um, and thinking pretty carefully about that. Um, I, I think, as, as mentioned earlier, uh, finding ways of sharing research more real time and finding ways of sort of thinking about essentially how to fork research, how to collaborate and comment and, and make it something that is not just useful as an illegible artifact for either hiring or funding purposes, but one that's actually powerful for collaboration is something we're thinking a lot about. So uh, there are a lot of folks who've used GitHub previously as uh, an analogy for how open source software has been uh, greatly enabled in terms of collaboration. What are similar sort of um, primitives and user interfaces that we can build for publishing. This is something we're actively figuring out right now, so I don't have anything tangible to, to point to, but ho hope to be able to share more on that front soon. And do you already see kind of like new tools emerging? Like I think GitHub is a good example in kind of like the more of like computer science and software world, but kind of like where, where it's like way easier to share data, to share kind of like research artifacts, to kind of like, yeah, co collaborate on research, uh, like in an easier way than maybe like is currently enabled by papers? Yeah, I've seen that there definitely uh, has been a wave of companies over the last decade that are trying to build digital tools, uh, whether they're sort of taking the physical lab notebook, building electronic lab notebook tools to help collaborate. Um, uh, my friends helped start Benchling and that's kind of grown into this uh, awesome story and company now of mostly building SAS tools for biotech, but they started with academics and molecular biology tools. Um, and there's uh, just more and more tooling these days that I see sort of project management notion like tools built specifically for uh, scientists um, and so on. So that, that, that space is definitely fruitful. And uh, there's always also a question I think that is uh, a powerful one to consider is how much do you need to sort of build things ground up versus how much can you integrate with existing uh, tools? And that's something I also think that's pretty powerful from the Web3 ethos of this notion of composability. Are there actually sort of building blocks that you can start stitching together uh, that enable this fully vertically integrating funding and publishing platform without having to build everything from scratch as one organization? Awesome. Ben, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I really like that train of thought. I can resonate with this idea of uh, kind of building on the tools that we already have. So I would say that Web2 and the open science layers, the open science tools that we've built in Web2, Web2 things like uh, Jupyter Notebook that, uh, that Darren mentioned, uh, they've leveraged some of the tools that we had before. So um, we had this layer of kind of for-profit journals and, and then now we're kind of moving into open science a bit more in Web2. I think that in the same manner, Web3, Web3 tools will kind of leverage some of the tools that we have built around open science and Web2. Uh, I think that they'll just kind of help realign incentives as Darren was saying, um, things like privacy, uh, funding, um, and kind of streamlining publication uh, just kind of on top of this Web2 layer. You both compared and contrasted Web2 versus Web3 a little bit. And I think it's top of everyone's mind in this space. What is the big advantage with Web3? Can you call out specific aspects of Web3 that you think will really add to this system? I think maybe to jump in, I think there's just like some fundamental features of Web3, especially around like trustlessness and also that uh, Ben touched upon in his piece on like tokenizing, for example, even patterns and having like um, kind of like immutable um, papers on chain that are kind of like impossible to change after the fact that I have like a clear uh, ledger, like history kind of um, and yeah, I think there's like a, a bunch of features that are like, unique with Web3. I think one of course is also just um, as seen with kind of like from NFTs to tokens, like a very native financialization where like people can like with one click fund something way easier than in Web2 and as well as own like a digital um, kind of property, which could be an NFT, but could also be 
scientific paper or like NFT in a more broad sense beyond kind of just the JPEG. Maybe Ben or Darren have something to add also on the Web3 unique. Yeah, I mean, the thing I think a lot about is this sort of catchphrase, uh, permissionless interoperability. And, and what that enables is a lot of emergent things to happen where you don't necessarily know a priori what the downstream applications or um, extensions of, of something I want to build in. But when folks have sort of wallet addresses that can then get airdropped certain tokens later, or that you can sort of look at their on-chain activity, that creates this um, open system where you can imagine reputation starting to accumulate um, in this open, transparent way that is difficult to do in a, in a sort of strictly web two way, um, where ultimately I think one of the most important things in academia is this notion of prestige and reputation and social status. And I think web three has been experimenting a lot with these primitives, um, still early days, a lot of people are trying to solve the reputation and the identity issues um, in, in, in a crypto economic way right now. But I, I do think uh, as those experiments mature, they will be broadly applicable and useful for something like uh, scientific funding and publishing. Yeah, I wanna jump, jump into that idea of prestige or reputation a little bit more because you both talk about it in your essays. And I think as scientists, we're aware that um, especially early stage investigators, your career is linked in a lot of ways to your publication record and where those papers have been published. And I think that's part of the uphill battle that we face with um, changing this space. So could you talk about how either of you are thinking about how to solve that problem of having, you know, reputation linked to a paper in nature or science or cell? Yeah, as we were saying before, I think that some of these old tools are not going to go away. So I don't think that science and nature as journals are going to go away. People are going to continue to want to publish their, their big articles there. But I think we can kind of move into a space where there's more available. There's uh, kind of more places to, to publish and to establish a reputation. I think, as Darren said, one of the big barriers that uh, the Web3 space is going to have to move past is this identity uh, problem right now. That That's kind of a sticking point, but I, I believe that we will get past it. Um, looking at how we establish reputation today, and at least in the last kind of couple decades, it's very Web2 centric that I think oftentimes people will look at something like an H-index. And this kind of represents the Web2 world to me that's kind of built up on this behemoth of Google Scholar. Um, it's very centralized around that, but I, I think we could pretty easily shift those types of metrics away from something like Google and towards a more kind of decentralized um, space where people kind of rise and build their reputation uh, away from the centralized entities like Google. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about prestige and reputation. I think it's um, something worth keeping in mind given how important it is. I've described this term prestige capture in my writing, which I think is a, a pretty powerful one that, that has an analog that uh, in the regulatory world where people talk a lot about regulatory capture, where uh, oftentimes people want to point to uh, burdensome regulation or, or places where essentially the government has a monopoly in regulation. And as a result, they are able to rent seek in various ways. And I think there's a, a strong analogy here in terms of who gets to adjudicate and decide on prestige. And a lot of that uh, is determined through journals today. And because they've built this monopoly on adjudicating prestige, they've begun rent seeking in, in various ways. And that isn't to say that prestige isn't a useful signal. Um, we use it for hiring across industries, not just in academia. Um, people use it in, in investing. Obviously, you know, somebody who goes through Y Combinator has now the prestige of Y Combinator, and one could argue that the value provided for that prestige that Y Combinator does today uh, is in surplus of the sort of the, the value they, they, they capture. And so that would be a case where prestige is a powerful amplifying force. Um, so the question is, how do we kind of recreate prestige in, in this new decentralized world. And I think this is again where um, crypto has shown some interesting experiments where uh, some of the folks with 
the highest social status in society today, whether they're athletes or musicians, have chosen to adopt NFTs as their profile pictures, even though the actual sort of monetary upside for them is, is pretty minimal. And I think there's something interesting about the signaling of status there that has been conferred. And so that that's one of the, the, the sort of incentive design experiments and mechanisms that that's that's kind of piqued my interest of whether there are ways of bootstrapping prestige in academia. Um, looking historically, Nature was once a, a new upstart journal, you know, in the late 1800s, and they had to figure out, uh, or they had to essentially bootstrap their way to becoming this prestigious behemoth. And at the time, they essentially offered uh, sort of two value propositions that the existing system of publishing through either monthly periodicals or books didn't have, which is one that they would be a weekly periodic weekly journal essentially of smaller articles so instead of having to wait and dump sort of your lifetime's worth of work into um, a monthly periodical or or, or or a book you could publish in a faster way so so part one of the value proposition was speed which is again kind of ironic given the this, this friction that we talked about earlier with publishing today but the other was breadth the fact that nature uh, would sort of bundle lots of different research into this one journal so that they have a larger audience that they would also be able to ship this uh, journal, not just in London and not just in uh, in England, but around the world. And that breadth of distribution also enabled them to get this uh, larger audience faster. And so really prestige can be tied to utility in the early days. And so I think there's something um, worth thinking about. What, what are new forms of utility uh, that can be provided through new digital publication formats that might slowly uh, start driving prestige um, to, to new publications. And again, it would be difficult to compete uh, directly with the natures and the sciences of the world, but thinking about uh, ways of approaching it more orthogonally, I think it is necessary. I think that's a really interesting point because I'm often struck by kind of the differences that we're faced with now living in such a digital world and nature back in the day, you know, being able to distribute a journal, a physical print journal globally was a logistical hurdle that they, you know, accomplished. And that was kind of a space that they were able to be successful in. But we're in such a different day and age now with much of our material being consumed online and digitally. Um, and it, I think it's an interesting, you know, thought question around how, how does a successful journal look like today? And um, what are the aspects of the new version of nature, right? Like, is it, it might not just be um, scientific publications, but the readability of those publications, like we talked about with Distill Pub. Um, and I, I think it's great that so many people are talking about this space because ultimately we don't want to just do the science and do the research and publish an academic scientific you know, paper, which is all very valid and important, but we also wanna disseminate that information to others who might not even be in this space in a way that they're able to like access the information, right? Yeah, yeah I think one also super interesting example actually of the last few weeks it's also just like the communities and like um, that form around like specific projects. Like this has been these like famous examples of like NFT sales, and then like uh, like Pleaser DAO that is Uniswap NFT. Then like people saw their friends bidding, and then they were like, "Oh, why don't we all come together and bid on this together?" And now it's like one of the biggest art collector DAOs that bought like Snowden NFT and like funded like fundamental causes with with tens of millions. And it really become also like a status signal to be in this community and like to together fund this uh, project or like recently with Constitution DAO. And I think that's also super interesting. It's like people want to do something together. Like they want fun, they want to fund something meaningful to them together. or want to be part of this community. And I think also with like on-chain identity, it becomes really powerful, like seeing, oh, like this person I know also supported this course or has this research project uh, funded. And I think we've also seen it uh, within VitaDAO that like, just like a lot of people are just excited to join like a community and do something together instead of like on their own, read a paper uh, and pass it on. Like, I think that's like one super interesting, um, yeah, kind of value that, 
that that I've seen like just like the, over even the last few months emerge, kind of like communities forming around um, specific projects. Yeah, excitement around DAOs has just been exploding in the last six months or uh, maybe a bit longer, but especially uh, kind of through this summer and fall. I very much see uh, academic communities organizing as DAOs. Uh, and uh, as an example of a community that I'm a part of, the um, I was talking about how I'm publishing through the American Geophysical Union. I could see um, them migrating toward a DAO, maybe not them in particular, but groups like them migrating towards a DAO model where they might have some shared treasury that they use to fund folks who are doing editing for their journals or doing reviews for their journals, uh, fund their meetings, the, the conferences that they organize. Uh, I could see folks getting within a community like that getting excited about coordination in a DAO. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful point because uh, earlier we were talking a little bit about sort of this permissionless interoperability afforded by the sort of the, some of the technological aspects of Web3 and crypto. But I think another really powerful thing that shouldn't be overlooked is the social cultural shelling point that sort of crypto has created in terms of community and collective action coming together. And so I think uh, it's been interesting to see this sort of various crowdfunding behavior that has been enabled, not uniquely by crypto, we could crowdfund things in the Web2 space, but there's something with the frictionlessness and also the culture of crypto of quickly getting an excited, activated community um, where there's also not just uh, incentive alignment via tokens and, and things, but also vision and mission alignment. And so I, I, I'm excited to see how that might translate um, in terms of uh, bottoms up community building in academic research. Absolutely. Very exciting space right now. Um, and prior to this recording um, this week, there was uh, an init initiation of a new DAO um, called Open Access DAO that was kind of uh, um, the idea spawned from a tweet from David McDougall, um, where he had a proposal for a DAO to buy all the top journals from Elsevier, et cetera, um, and governance tokens could decide which journals to prioritize for purchase. And there's been a lot of talk in this space this week alone. I'd love to get both of your perspectives on this idea and this new DAO and how you're thinking about um, this somewhat lofty goal of potentially purchasing some of the journals that are um, inducing a lot of these paywalls that we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, I saw the tweet. I, to be honest, haven't looked into it too much, so I haven't been tracking the, the progress on that, I guess. My perspective is I kind of just want to boycott these types of institutions rather than giving them large sums of money. So I, I see it as more of an opt-out thing rather than buy them out. Uh, yeah, but I'm interested in kind of looking more into what has been happening around that now. Yeah, I think it's cool. I think there's lots of interesting experiments to be run in the space. Obviously, one of the places where DAOs have succeeded uh, the most is in sort of collective buy-in. And so I think it's a natural place for people to sort of direct energy is uh, collective buy-in of uh, old institutions and Constitution DAO obviously was, was very much in that light. Um, as Ben mentioned, I, I'm generally excited about the crypto opportunities to sort of quote unquote exit rather than sort of uh, reform the system from within, um, especially when there are deeper structural issues. I uh, think in some ways uh, we have sort of a preview of sort of what open access DAO's success would look like in the form of SciHub today. It's obviously you know, uh, illegal and, and violates copyright law. But to some extent, um, SciHub is uh, a manifestation of what would exist if there was sort of full open access of journals. And even with SciHub, which has been a marvelous resource that uh, I think lots of people have benefited from uh, without requiring the academic institutional access. Um, even there, I still think there's some structural issues with how we share and, and, and publish science today. Uh, and so I'm sort of more excited by the opportunities that Web3 enable for imagining sort of the next, uh, next sort of set of ways for publishing, as Ben mentioned. Uh, but I, I'm curious to track how uh, Open Access DAO and other DAOs will, will think about sort of ways of collective buying um, 
something that Vincent and, and I've talked a lot about uh, recently is thinking about collectively funding um, prizes and grants. And so I think there are lots of ways to channel that same energy of um, crowdfunding for other things that can maybe structurally change the incentives in scientific research. Yeah, this gets at a point that I've been thinking about a lot recently and written a little bit about, but I think we can leverage some of the uh, the funding tools within the Web3 space in academic in academia really well. Uh, the Gitcoin model comes to mind where for folks who uh, have, aren't as in touch with what's happening in Web3 space, Gitcoin is essentially you have this matching pool funded by uh, some centralized group that wants to disperse funds uh, to usually some kind of open source projects, projects that wouldn't have normally gotten funding. And then that matching pool gets divvied up based on uh, community members who are donating to projects. And uh, the more community members that donate to a given project, the more uh, the, the larger an allocation they get, that project gets from the matching pool. I could see within academics using a similar model where something like NSF or NIH acts as uh, a contributor to the matching pool. And then maybe you have some crowdsourced funds towards different projects, proposal ideas. Uh, but the, kind of the, the critical sticking point is that within academic funding, you don't want to just fund any project. And it's, it's hard for uh, kind of the layperson to assess some of these proposals. So you want to have something behind peer review. And I could see, uh, again, kind of Web3 tools being used here where you lock funds away in some escrow, escrow contract. And then there are folks who act as reviewers on the proposal. And then as soon as it passes review, then the escrow is released and the project gets funded. And if it doesn't pass review, then the funds go back to, to whoever, um, whoever donated toward the project. Yeah, I think it's a great example. Like just touching briefly on like we are also uh, started this Bitcoin rounds. Like I think yesterday is on the 1st of December uh for longevity and climate research and kind of like exploring it with them for the first time outside also of open source and to your point also darren on first teachers it's fascinating to observe like i'm kind of like trying to bring together all the matching funders who provide like tens of hundreds of thousands of matching and kind of the dynamic there because it's really about signaling and like like kind of like without disclosing everyone's names because not everyone has contributed yet but uh, some of the most well-known figures uh in, in the whole space are supporting it, but then others like who are also like have like huge resources kind of like even saying, yeah, I'm happy to support it if that person's also supporting it. And, and it becomes like more like a status game in the sense of like, oh, I want to associate myself with this person. And if this person funds it, I also want to fund it. So which is fascinating to observe. And then others are just excited by it. And are like, yeah, where can I send $100,000 to, to match this? just to to support it so i think it's really fascinating to see kind of like prestige play out there in real time as well as kind of having onboarded uh, for example 20 efforts on a longevity round and one of them being impetus grants which is this very well-known longevity grant and it it of course received like most of the donations thus far so also like a lot of the um matching pool which of course can be attributed to kind of the point you also brought up on like prestige and uh, being well-known kind of um, funding bodies that like by now and in, in well known to crypto because a lot of people in crypto supported it. So I think it's yeah, fascinating to observe these things also in these small experiments to see how they play out. But um, I think it's really powerful because now we kind of see on chain all the addresses that supported this round or like specific people and kind of um, yeah can, can give them even like an NFT by which they can access something else. So I think it, it creates like an interesting, yeah, playground to explore these ideas. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited by kind of this whole direction of like exploring different funding mechanisms. But yeah, Darren, to your point, I would be curious to hear more about uh, your thoughts on, on prices and what do you think? Um, like I, I, I know that you kind of with Atoms working on this COVID price, would be curious what you think is like the, the most interesting kind of first uh, kinds of prizes you would like to explore and like kind of the incentives as well as like goals that this prize could like achieve and enable? Yeah, that's a great question. I think 
uh, one of the things that is most exciting about crypto is the opportunity to do a lot of experiments with mechanism design. And as you mentioned, they're often unintended or almost always unintended uh, effects uh, of these experiments uh, that you don't anticipate. And so perhaps one of them is actually rather than democratizing and decentralizing funding and attention, it actually re-centralizes it because there's sort of high mimetic behavior and crypto and, and society at large, you know, uh, often encourages that mimetic behavior rather than sort of um, quote unquote objective um, uh, behavior. And so uh, prizes, I think, are, are a place to do a lot of mechanism design exper experimentation. And it's been cool to see people broadly in crypto uh, with the folks at Optimism and Vitalik writing about retroactive uh, public goods funding, which is a form of sort of prize adjudication and funding things using um, essentially an ex post um, mechanism. And so uh, I think there, there's a lot of potential to think about the future of prizes in, in a few different vectors. One, traditionally we've used prizes to sort of celebrate people collectively. And I think that's gonna be a powerful thing to keep doing going forward. And um, there's precedent in, in, in sort of scientific history uh, of using prizes, obviously, in that way. But I, I think there's some new tweaks to that that we could imagine where, uh, in addition to celebrating it, because there's a prestigious institution that grants the prize, we could celebrate it in a more collective way where people are crowdfunding. And so we built this little prototype for folks to crowdfund uh, a prize for the scientists involved in the basic research that led to the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, uh, many of whom struggled to get funding and struggled to publish uh, early in the day, you know, starting decades ago. Um, but I think long-term, there's a lot of interesting experiments to play around with prizes uh, as an alternative to grants where you have to know things a priori, um, not necessarily know things perfectly a priori, but it's difficult to adjudicate things uh, a, a priori in terms of which project is most likely to succeed. Um, prizes obviously re require a different set of uh, challenges in terms of what is what is the objective function you want to bake into your prize or bounty. Um, but there is the sort of benefit of hindsight in terms of using prizes. I also think prizes could be an interesting mechanism for thinking about how we can move away from sort of more uh, closed intellectual property based uh, patents essentially for funding innovation. Um, so those are just a few quick thoughts on terms of how we can imagine using prizes and escrow functions has been sort of touched on and other um, experiments in the mechanism design space for funding research. Yeah, super interesting and kind of like very like related to that. Um, what's your like thoughts on, on these decentralized grants that you also brought up in the Atoms uh, Magna Carta, like kind of like your thoughts on how um, yeah, grants could look different in, in, with kind of Web3 but also like how you could envision like a first yeah, example to look like and, and you know, which properties it would have and like kind of also maybe which communities and which scientific areas it might tackle first and um, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think in some ways grants are sort of like a capital allocation problem. And, and so the question is sort of what are the incentives for grant reviewers today? And a lot of it is to sort of uphold the scientific quality um, of the field, uh, which is a very sort of noble um, motivation. But then there's often sort of intentional or often actually probably unintentional conflicts of interest that can arise in terms of uh, certain, um, certain forms of science being more readily fundable through grant mechanisms. Obviously, certain types of PIs being uh, and professors being funded through grant mechanisms. Uh, the data, at least based on the NIH, show that the, the cohort of uh, scientists who are getting funded are getting only getting older. And so this, in some ways, go, reminds me a little bit of what you just mentioned in, in the Gitcoin round, uh, empirically, that sort of the, the, the famous projects often will attract more funding. So can we actually reimagine uh, ways where the reviewers um, and the actual allocators uh, of these grants care more about the long-term success of the projects, um, and especially the higher risk, higher reward ones, which are difficult to some, sometimes justify, especially in, on the shorter term scales, um, but often produce outsized return for, for society. How do we kind of align that? And again, um, the, the venture capital model hasn't 
also fully solved it. There's still lots of mimetic behavior there, but there is at least um, incentive alignment for folks to take more contrarian bets and to look at asymmetric upside opportunities in a way that doesn't quite exist in sort of capital allocation in, in the scientific world today. Great. Ben, any comments there? Yeah, I, uh, we've kind of touched on this a couple of times, but I just want to kind of expand on this issue with the mimetic behaviors, specifically in academics, that I think uh, folks are often equipped, uh, kind of like the layperson is equipped to assess maybe uh, a company or a crypto project that influences them that they uh, kind of can use on a day-to-day -day basis, but they might not be equipped to assess a scientific proposal. So this is where the peer review process really comes in and we can leverage Web3 tools uh, to kind of couple peer review to funding mechanisms and use smart contracts to, to do that, lock it away in this ESCO contract, like we said. Uh, so I think connecting things in this way is uh, one of the strengths that hopefully Web3 will enable. I would be also curious from, from Ben, like on your piece on tokenized thoughts, like some, like maybe if you want to, um, share some like key takeaways for, for the readers that haven't um, read it or also kind of like what do you think is it's kind of like the, the high level um, takeaway? Yeah, we've kind of talked about a lot of it. So I think it's uh, kind of at a base level talking about this permissionless, trustless layer that we can establish connecting kind of producers of scientific content to consumers. And then I touch on a few of these uh, different ideas that we've discussed as kind of academic DAOs arising, funding models like this Gitcoin model. One of the points that we haven't talked about so much that I think would be interesting, and I would be interested to get uh, perspectives from you all on, is privacy and how that could be important in pushing academics uh, forward with the Web3 space. Oftentimes, academics will want to publish something, they'll have an idea, but it might be controversial and that the, the community might not accept it right away. So they want to publish that idea, but, and they want to get credit for it, but maybe they don't want to put their name on it. Uh, I don't, I'm not a cryptographer, so I don't fully understand uh, all, all of these tools, but folks are working on ZK proofs and it seems like those will enable private transactions. I could envision, or I hope that uh, that might enable private publishing to both publishing of your own material as well as private peer review. I think one interesting example in, in crypto has best definitely been kind of like even going back to Bitcoin with like Satoshi kind of like creating probably one of the most like seminal, if you like even papers that kind of like influence like a lot of like technology down the line. And, and um, I think there's like a lot of examples of like some of like the highest, um, yeah, I think like Satoshi is probably uh, like the, one of the most popular uh, anonymous authors and builders or creators. But then there's like a bunch of other people also in crypto who have like sort of anonymous or, or completely anonymous identities building protocols. So I, I could imagine the same actually for science being much more natively enabled by crypto, kind of like even people coming together in like an anonymous collective to share thoughts on specific areas that they are not comfortable linking to their real world identity and also like having different identities and it can also become like there can also be anonymous identities like satoshi so it, um i think that's like one interesting area because i'm not sure and, and haven't seen much kind of anonymous publishing or researchers um yeah so i think that's definitely interesting to see how, how it will emerge and how it will play out yeah i, I think that... the dynamic of sorry to interrupt oh, you I, thought, I, I was gonna say i think the the dynamic of pseudonyms is, is really interesting as a crypto native primitive, obviously, uh, as Vincent mentioned, dating to Satoshi. Um, and in some ways, it lets you take higher risk uh, bets on, and, and experiments. And uh, there is a question uh, that crypto faces right now, as we touched on earlier, in terms of identity, how do you actually do sort of quote unquote, civil resistant pseudonyms so that you aren't sort of spoofing support of you know, uh, peer review of a paper and you're actually both the reviewer and the researcher. And so I think there's some interesting experiments, some coming from sort of the zero knowledge proofs world in terms of figuring out ways where you can give one uh, identity, multiple pseudonyms, still know that those pseudonyms all tie to the underlying identity, uh, 
so that you can re reduce these sort of civil attacks, um, but enable one identity to have potentially multiple pseudonyms, uh, whether it's because they want to dabble in research that they are perhaps not um, comfortable dabbling in publicly. Uh, oftentimes people describe the closed nature of peer review as a feature that's necessary so that you can critically evaluate other researchers without um, getting any sort of backlash. You can imagine some, some of these mechanisms being useful there, but I do think there will be a lot to learn from the experimentation in terms of identity and pseudonyms uh, across crypto that will be very relevant for uh, academic research. That's such an interesting point you both make, and I think very uh, important at this point in time, considering what's been going on with the pandemic and how fraught a lot of the research has been in that space. Um, many people struggling to publish research that I think is really important um, to get out there uh, as far as our understanding of, you know, the virus and, and COVID-19. Um, and I think it, it, it's so interesting to think that we could learn from this anonymous world and, and how to go about sharing information more transparently and more effectively and more efficiently. Um, and I, I think it's really inspiring thought process because it has the potential, you know, obviously hurdles and, and pitfalls as well, but it has the potential to really help us advance as a collective knowledge system in our understanding of things that are still evolving and research that's still developing and being underway and might not be, um, you know, upheld or spoken about in, in the mainstream. So thank you for those thoughts. Maybe like, I'd, I'd be curious kind of, um, like uh, Darren, you mentioned the, the prize and, and kind of like these projects from Distill to um, Research Hub, kind of like which concrete things you'd be most excited about building or, or seeing getting built like in, in a foreseeable future, like kind of like if you had just unlimited manpower and resources and could will everything into existence, what, what would you both be most excited about to see kind of happen and, and get realized? Yeah, in some ways, I think it's the sort of uh, utopian vision of a new research economy uh, where, you know, we have lots of capital coming in, which I'm actually really excited about sort of the, the future of crypto philanthropy and, and, and the folks who have gotten really excited about scientific research as perhaps the, one of the most important public goods to fund. Um, and so sort of a platform that allows people to, uh, as individuals or institutions to fund science quickly, uh, whether that's through grants, prizes, bounties, other funding mechanisms, but then also use that to kind of bootstrap this new, uh, these new models of sharing and, and publishing science, uh, because again, there needs to be some sort of incentive alignment. And one way of doing that is sort of from the funding level. Obviously, there are a lot of incentives that exist on the hiring level too that are trickier to solve, but there are new institutions that are emerging as new, uh, new places for scientists to, to work either independently or out, completely outside of uh, academia. And so uh, sort of this, in my mind, there's sort of this new opportunity to build um, an orthogonal path of funding and publishing to the traditional scientific research one and getting the tools and infrastructure in place for that will, will take a while. And so um, hopefully the other thing that, that, that gets me excited is this community collective movement of building tools, obviously Vita Down and Molecule have been doing great stuff on the intellectual property front as another piece of this, this sort of flywheel of research. Um, but there's a lot more that needs to be done there and so that's sort of the, the this utopian research ecosystem is probably the the thing that I think a lot about. What are you kind of most excited about, Ben? Like to see, like if you just had unlimited resources to to build something or, or like get something built. Yeah, I'm excited about a lot of the things that we've talked about. Uh, in particular, funding mechanisms. I think we've talked about quite a bit, and I think that we can leverage folks. Uh, we can leverage the community, folks who want to, like philanthropists, folks who want to fund science and incorporate that into the, the traditional uh, funding model within academia. I see um, the way that Darren has been talking about this kind of orthogonal path. Uh, I'm excited about setting up this exit ramp that folks can opt out 
when and if they want to. If we kind of set up better tooling where there's a more continuous stream of publications, folks can maybe just, maybe they'll, they'll start by just uh, benchmarking a data set or an idea that they've had, and then they still want to go and eventually publish that in a for-profit journal somewhere. Uh, but then they kind of get a taste of, oh, this, uh, this orthogonal path is kind of cool that we can publish things quickly, that we don't need to get permission from anyone, we don't need to pay, it's all open access uh, by default. And then they'll start kind of using that more often, and then maybe they'll publish a full manuscript there. Uh, hopefully kind of our younger generation, I, I don't see kind of the, um, the PI level, a lot of uh, kind of the institutions that are already set up, I think that they will kind of continue to use the tools that they're used to, but younger folks kind of coming in and uh, doing science are interested in these open science tools and might be receptive to uh, start publishing elsewhere if those tools are made available to them. So I'm excited to kind of see what kind of what just arises naturally as groups, uh, communities, DAOs start to form uh, and folks start to um, use those tools to, to opt out of the traditional system. Yeah, that's a great point. Like one thing I'd be curious about, like if you have any thoughts, it's kind of like, of course, it, it, it's much more likely, say, for climate research, longevity research, like kind of like fancier research subjects to gather both community and like funding also from like kind of the crypto community and, and also beyond. Uh, like do you have an idea for kind of like more like the long tail of science and maybe even like the very fundamental uh, basic sciences that might be less sexy, but like even more fundamental to our like scientific advancement, how, how they could uh, get more funding also in, in, in that world. Because I, I see it also in crypto that like climate DAO or climate research or long, same for longevity would definitely get more funding than like some basic chemistry research or some basic math research that might even help both of those fields, but might be like less directly kind of, um, yeah, connected to that. So I'd be curious if you, like, if you have, um, maybe also Darren, if you have an idea or Ben for kind of how to make the less sexy science subjects um, also kind of part of that vision and, and not just like the more, more hyped areas, including climate and longevity maybe. I don't have any specific ideas, but touching on this point that has come up several times now, I think that the new the newer tooling will be built on top of older mechanisms that are already established. So I don't envision centralized funding agencies going away. I think that a lot of the funding for academics, for science will kind of continue in the way that it has, but uh, maybe some of these ideas that uh, communities are excited about climate research, like you said, or longevity research, um, Web3 tools will just provide an avenue for philanthropists to uh, push money into places in a, in a way that they can kind of trust, that, that, that they know that the proposal has still been passed, it has still passed peer review, um, but that they have an avenue toward, to contribute toward that funding. Yeah, I think it's a great question because I think um, one of the challenges that I do often uh, have some skepticism in terms of crypto and Web3 is, there is often a, there can often be a short-termism in terms of sort of uh, pump and dump schemes and instant liquidity. And, uh, and the question is, how do we actually incentivize long-term durable contributions and value being created? And so along that line, I, I do think science operates often in these very serendipitous ways where there's this long tail of research, as you mentioned, Vincent, that ultimately is the stuff that creates the outsized returns. You know, everyone talks about CRISPR these days, but um, it was, you know, in part motivated by some of these yogurt scientists looking at these bizarre sort of genomic tandem repeats that they had no idea that this was going to be a genome editing tool. You know, it didn't come out of the folks who are already trying to optimize zinc finger nucleases or talons. It came out of folks who are just pursuing uh, a line of completely unrelated research. And so I do worry sometimes that focusing too much directly on your outcome, whether that's longevity or climate, uh, sort of tunnel visions you in a way where you don't look at the broad swath of research that may have outsized return. And so uh, along those lines, an area that I think 
um, is potentially high leverage or, or, or almost certainly high leverage is thinking about meta research and so sort of the science of science. And uh, there are lots of good folks uh, at Protocol Labs and uh, the STARE Institute that are uh, really starting to invest a lot of time and resources into thinking about meta research and really thinking both retrospectively, what were the things and opportunities that generated these sort of outsized returns um, in science and how do we enable that sort of creative curiosity that's perhaps much more open-ended than rather than objective focus, um, like some of the fields that you mentioned, Vincent. Um, and how do we also cultivate that long-term thinking, that protected uh, sort of pure scientific curiosity that may end up having societal benefits, but may also not have direct societal benefits. So I think there's um, a sort of a tension always between sort of short-termism and long-termism and also sort of um, pure curiosity and pure science and sort of impact and uh, and intellectual property and these sort of more tangible, legible outputs of science. Maybe as, a, as, as also one last question, I'd be super curious kind of like uh, for recommendations could be on, on kind of like decentralized science, but could also be like favorite books or something in particular that we can also link in the show notes kind of we will definitely link like Ben's piece on tokenized thoughts and kind of like the atoms, uh, Magna Carta. But yeah, I would be super curious, kind of like what what have been like some of the resources that most inspired you recently or in general that you'd recommend. I uh, am so, as I hinted in the beginning, I'm just kind of getting more in touch with this decentralized science space, uh, and when I first started looking into some of the literature, I thought that some of it was maybe a bit disconnected from where the Web3 movement is, is headed, some of the, the published literature. But as I, so I published this Twitter thread maybe a month or two ago, and then I've started to get more uh, in touch with folks who are actually kind of at the front lines. And I think Absentia is a group that I'm really excited about recently, and they are doing these DAO halls that I've only gone to one so far. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a group that folks should look into and maybe kind of join one or two of the DAO halls. Uh, I'm excited about what they're doing, what they're writing. It was founded by a neuroscientist, but it's kind of growing into a bigger group. Yeah, for me, I, I've uh, really enjoyed sort of looking back at what folks have been writing and thinking about in terms of uh, sort of the history of science in some ways rather than looking forward. And as I mentioned, sort of reading books on the history of nature and reading books on sort of the history of Bell Labs and reading books uh, that uh, kind of help us understand what, how incentives and culture have changed to some extent. Um, what were the sort of mechanisms that led to the most insightful, powerful discoveries we have today? And then are there ways of implementing those in sort of a global open sort of crypto native way? Or are, are, are there things that don't have to necessarily be Web3? I've been sort of, I, I try not to sort of force myself down uh, a crypto only path. I try to be fairly open-minded about other, other mechanisms. So I'm happy to send some specific book titles and suggestions later. Um, Great. Also, Mina, we can share all resources maybe afterwards in the show notes. Yeah, we'll definitely link all of these resources and if you have any particular resources for folks that are new to the Web3 or crypto space, um, were there any blog posts or podcasts that we could perhaps share with listeners to get acquainted with this uh, new world? Yeah, maybe like I, I can do like a first one, which I think is is relevant. It's like even reading like the Ethereum white paper and there's also like easier versions of it. Like the, I, I talked to people who are like, building an Ethereum in three years who haven't read the Ethereum white paper or like the Bitcoin white paper. And I think it's a great starting point and uh, kind of like like uh, reading the primary literature and not like the secondary or like third reference of, of the original literature. So I think that's definitely yeah worth reading, but I would be curious also for Ben's and Darren's recommendation. Yeah, I think uh, to kind of establish a, a baseline for how some of these systems work, that's definitely a good place to start. For To get an understanding of kind of the community development, I really like Cami Russo's book, The Infinite Machine, uh, that kind of goes over the history of how Ethereum was founded. So that's a good one too. 
Yeah, I think for me, probably the most useful stuff was Vitalik's writing dating back from the white paper, but also on his blog and a lot of the interviews that he's done uh, where the things are a little bit more accessible and conversational. He's done a lot of podcasts. Um, but I also think a lot of it is ultimately around just tinkering around and setting up a little wallet address and playing with some of these systems and putting a little bit of, uh, you know, funding a wall and, and just starting to play around in some ways it's as much experiential as it is sort of uh knowledge that you can read about and same with the communities is, is jumping in into some of these discord servers and telegram groups and seeing that uh cultural energy more so than even just the sort of technology that we've talked a lot about yeah i certainly agree i think also some good starting points are communities like gitcoin that uh pioneered some of kind of the yeah where, where people can also play with even funding research today and kind of exploring their community because yeah, and, and I think they also have like a great program um, for people who actually want to get started in Web3, like this Kernel Fellowship. But yeah, there's a bunch of great places we can link in the resources. Awesome. This was great. I, I really hope everyone learned a lot from, from Ben and Darren's thoughts in this space. And I just feel incredibly excited for where scientific publishing goes next and how Web3 might play a role in the future of scientific publishing. And I uh, really thank you both for detailing your thoughts in, in writing and, and in a way that we can share with others and, and sharing some of those thoughts here on this podcast. So thank you all for your time and um, we'll make sure to link all of those resources so that our listeners can learn even more about this space. Awesome. Great. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. us on here. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being on it. That wraps up this episode of Ultra Rare, the podcast. This episode was a collaboration with our friends at Vita Dow. Please consider subscribing if you've enjoyed this content and check out their community discord. There's a lot going on there, some really exciting uh, projects happening, and it's just a fun space to get to know uh, a Web3 community and everything that they're building. Uh, thank you, Vincent, for co-hosting with me today, and thank you, Ben and Darren, for sharing all of your thoughts. And thank you to our listeners for checking out this content. Keep an eye out for future episodes as we take a tour through the world of science and Web3. Thanks so much for listening.